and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a questionable choice. In fact, I often wonder how I got talked into doing this in the first place. We are doing, for the first time ever on Staff Picks, a goddamn Friday the 13th movie, which are like the bane of cinematic existence throughout the 80s up until today. Yet there is one of them that I've always found to be a little more charming than the rest, and I think I've always called this the one good one. And there's many reasons why I say that. We are talking, of course, about Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, which I can guarantee will be the only Part 6 I ever do on Staff Picks. But there's something so charming and different about this one that stands out from the rest of the series that I've been dying to do this episode, even though Friday the 13th does not need more attention. So here we go. We're going to delve into our first and probably only Friday the 13th sequel, and I have a fun guest here. Uh, this guy's a college student, really big fan of film and uh, movie studies and slasher films in general. He's a big uh, horror film guy. He's one of these guys that studies film, but he's not pretentious about it. And slashers are like one of his specialty genres. And he has been talking about this movie with me for a long time behind the scenes. I'm very excited to have him on the show. Welcome to Staff Picks, Brian Farrell. Hey, Mario. How you doing? I am doing so good, especially now that I know we finally have crossed the line and we're doing Friday the 13th on Staff Picks. I know, and and you mentioned earlier how you think this is probably going to be the only part six you ever do, and I just have to say that, you know, I was really looking forward to that Return of the Jedi podcast, so uh, <laughs> I guess uh, that one's going to have to be a no-go. No-go, no. What's, if we do, I, I'm telling people right now, I'm warning, this is where I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. If I do any Star Wars movies on this show, it will be the prequels. Are you still here? Making sure you didn't leave after that sentence. I know. I mean, I've always been um, the type of uh, the type of guy to uh, be big on the original three, but I can I can appreciate a good Attack of the Clones reference uh, when it comes up. Just don't ask me about the Last Jedi, because then we might uh, we might uh, get into some real problems. All right. So why don't you give us a little backstory? Who you are? Where you came from? How you're you're like a college student? How do you know so much about the Friday the Thirteenth series? Sure. So it all started when I was conceived. Um, yeah, no. So uh, I am 21 years old. I'm probably other than a 12 year old. I'm probably one of the youngest guests you've had on this podcast. Growing up, my only real knowledge of the major slasher franchises for, for that, I'm going to say Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, my only real knowledge of of those movies was just the main characters, you know, your Jason, your Michael Myers, your Freddy Krueger, uh, because, you know, I don't know about you, but there weren't really a lot of uh, young kids watching slasher movies. I have distinct memories of my cousin uh, always scaring me by wearing a Michael Myers mask, and and I will still cite that to this day as being the reason why I've always been terrified of Michael Myers, uh, and why I consider the Halloween movies to be legitimately scary. Uh, while some of these other movies have, you know, just kind of been jokes from the start, uh, in my opinion. I really got interested in slashers, and I'll probably break your heart by by telling you this. I was watching this guy on YouTube. He's a pretty well-known guy. He was more popular uh, a couple of years ago, named the Angry Video Game Nerd. I've heard of him. Oh, okay. Um, and so other than his video game videos... He also runs a website called Cinemassacre, 
And he would do this thing yearly where every October he would do something called the Cinemassacre Monster Madness, where every day he would post a new video about a new horror movie, you know, like all like the universal horror movies and, and stuff like that. I was a fan of his video game stuff because I've always been big into video games. That's always been like my real specialty. And I was watching some of his Monster Madness videos because uh, he had those posted on YouTube. And I saw he did one on or he did a series of them on the Halloween movies. And, you know, like I said, my only real knowledge of them was the main character. Um, but I watched those videos and I became really interested in them because I just thought that they were like just so weird and just. By so weird, I'm probably referring to, like, part six when Paul Rudd shows up. Okay. Um, another infamous I, another part, part six. six. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so then I, I, I started trying to find ways to watch them. And, again, I'm also probably going to break your heart with this, but the first time I ever watched these movies was when they were on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, God, I feel old. I know, yeah. I, I It's not going to get much better, trust me. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about a movie that came out 11 years before I was born. Oh, God. But yeah, so I, I started watching the Halloween movies. I think the first one that was on Netflix for that I saw was Halloween H2O. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, what's a good companion to the Halloween movies but the Friday the 13th movies. And so the first one that I ever saw was actually The New Blood. What? You started with a part seven? Listen, listen. Uh, no, the... no, you listen. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, finish your story. Yeah, so Netflix, you know, they like to sporadically put random movies on and take them off and whatnot. I'm not sure uh, how well how well versed you are in uh, Netflix. <laughs> no, none. You're telling me you're not a big uh, a queer eye on Netflix fan? No, I, I don't really follow the internets. I'm not sure how they work. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know about about you, Mario, but uh, you know what the what, what all the cool kids are saying nowadays is that. School sucks, but, you know, just the stinking internet is just so dope, dude. <laughs> did you just drop a Nathan For You reference on staff picks? I absolutely did. I'm very proud of you. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, so the first one that I watched was The New Blood, and then, you know, the movies come and go, and eventually Jason Lives was on there. Mm -hmm. And so I watched that, and I think the only Friday the 13th movie uh, I saw before then just being The New Blood you know, I had a, a reasonable expectation for what the movies in the series were like, having seen parts six and seven. Well, c compared to part seven, Jason Lives is like Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Listen, compared to every other movie in this series, Jason Lives is Citizen Kane. Um, so it was much to my uh, disappointment when I started watching the other movies and realized that most of them are actually really bad. <laughs> So yeah, so that's that's where I've been with with Friday. I uh, to to recap, I learned about slasher movies through watching a video game guy on YouTube, uh, seeing his YouTube videos about slasher movies, and then watching them on Netflix. <laughs> I gotta say this. I I must add this. This will be entertaining. That you out of all the episodes I've done on staff picks, this is the one there was the most interest for, where the most people wanted to be my co-host. And you somehow rose, the cream of the crop. You rose to the top, this kid who just started watching these movies. Meanwhile, I have 15, 20 friends that grew up in the 70s and 80s and have seen these movies hundreds of times, and they're sitting there screaming, like, why is this guy? Why did you pick him? But there's a good reason, because you and I are coming at this from different angles. And that's why I wanted to do it. I think this is going to be fascinating. Well, it's also that and the fact that Nick Tate already took Sky High. Um, 
I, I really wanted to do Sky High, but, you know, Jason Lives is, is a nice second choice. <laughs> yes, it's the Sky High of the Friday the 13th franchise. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, I have to point out my perspective how I'm coming at this, and this will be completely foreign to you, I would assume. And I, sure. I, I'm, I'm just letting my viewer, my, my listeners know, I'm not trying to be hostile. I'm just trying to create some fun dichotomy because Brian and I agree on this movie being awesome. So, But we just come at it from a different place. And I will say the Friday the 13th series, for kids who grew up in the 70s and 80s, this was the worst of the worst. This is like the biggest schlock, near pornography, you know, abomination of movies that they existed in the 80s. To the point that I think Siskel and Ebert tried to get these things banned. That's how much they hated slasher movies because it was just gratuitous people getting killed and the audience cheering. And it was like the most horrible thing. And all these movie critics at the time thought these things were an abomination. And the Friday the 13th movies were always the worst. They were at the top because they were just straight gore porn and just people, you know, going to see the greatest killings and applauding. And so as a kid growing up in the 80s, I was not allowed to see our movies. So naturally, I want to see every R movie that I can. And the Friday the 13th movies are right at the top of my list. So I grew up in this era where these, these were the top, you know, crap, gore fest movies that kids should never be allowed to see ever. And I would always just sneak into the video store and read the boxes and just pay attention to the, you know, the pictures on the back and the people in the cast. So like... I must have read the boxes of these movies hundreds of times before I ever actually saw one. And then I eventually did see them when I got old enough and I eventually figured out a way to watch them. And I'm like, these aren't very good. (laughs) Maybe there's a reason they weren't so beloved. But again, part six is the one that I think was actually really fun. But that's the one thing I want to get across to people, how hated these movies were for their era. And it's so different so like times have changed so much over the years like these are considered classic movie monster franchises now and it's amazing like i to just put my to wrap some up my love of jason voorhees i have dressed up as jason voorhees pretty much like 25 of the last 26 years for halloween that's just what i do and i stand out there and i hand out candy and like people want to come up to me and they want me to take a picture with their kids or they want to hug me like, oh, I love you, Jason. Like, oh, my five year old loves you and he wants to hug you. And I'm like, why are you hugging Jason Voorhees? Like, it's such a different perspective that I see now in culture on these movies based on where they were then and where they are now. It's just astounding to me. Yeah. And I guess uh, coming from it, coming at it from my perspective uh, as someone who's a lot closer to being a five year old. <laughs> Um, I would say that all those kids that love Jason Voorhees, I will guarantee you, have never seen a Friday the 13th movie. <laughs> I should hope not, especially the early ones. The early ones, I mean, are just straight gore. There's nothing, almost nothing redeeming about those early Friday the 13th movies. Oh, absolutely not. Over the course of the past few days, I've I've made it a goal um, to be re-watching as much of these movies as possible. I'm actually on spring break right now. Like I said, school sucks, but, you know, the Internet is just, you know, so freaking dope. Um, But I've obviously seen the first Friday the 13th before, and I didn't realize how much I hated it until until I watched it like two days ago. I mean, just that's just a movie that is just so painful to get through. You know, I think. Jason Lives is 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 a great movie uh, compared to other Friday the Thirteenth movies, but I think what would make it a lot better is if there were more scenes of Tommy Jarvis making coffee. <laughs> All right, 
I'm glad you've done your research. You clearly know. All right, well, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here, give you a little street cred, because like I said, there's so many people anticipating this podcast because there's all these Friday the 13th, these closet Friday the 13th experts out there that think they know the series. Give me your top three movies in the franchise. What would they be? Okay, number one, I'll say Jason Lives for the obvious reasons. Uh, and then there's going to be a huge gap uh, in between numbers one and two. Number two, I'm... This is going to be a shock pick, um, but when I rewatched it, I, I realized how much I enjoyed it. I'm going to say part three. Okay. And I think part of the reason why I enjoy that one so much was because I realized how it's kind of like a precursor to Jason Lives in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think Friday the 13th as a franchise kind of lost all validity <laughs> when the, the, the third movie started off with a guy eating fish food. Um, and just sitting on the toilet and like playing with a rabbit. Uh, so it so it had a lot of validity up until that point. You're saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, listen. Th this is this is somehow the series that got Betsy Palmer to uh, <laughs> appear in it, and and the illustrious Kevin Bacon from Animal House. Um, <laughs> All right. So six and three. What's your third? Six and three, and just because it's just so bizarre. Let's go Jason X. Wow. Because it's just so out there. That's a ballsy choice. I'm going to say that movie knows exactly what it wants to do, mm -hmm. and it's not holding back on it on any front. And, you know, I just, I like these movies when they're ridiculous. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't like them when they're ridiculous to the point where Jason Voorhees is a slug that's crawling up people's um, genitals. <laughs> um, but I But I like the movies when they know the tone that they're going for and you know they just go all out with it okay um i actually agree with you i i am a big not a big fan but i like jason x more than most people and for people who don't know the friday the 13th series we're gonna i'm gonna give you a quick little summary in a minute but just to back up to answer the same question six is my favorite then i love two two is my second favorite and it's only because they actually make an attempt to try to figure out this crazy ass story about jason and go into his psychology a little bit and I love that ending, the ending with his mom. And then I like three. So I like six, two, three, and then probably four. And then I don't really like any of them that much. But I, Jason X, I, I begrudgingly kind of think that one's kind of fun. I agree. J Jason in space, as they call that one. And I think, you know, a lot of people put part four. Like, I think mm -hmm. from the, the vast majority of fans, they usually go between six and four as their favorite. I, I like four. It would definitely be in my top half. I guess, which, you know, is not a very hard thing to do, but I, I've always, I've just found that I like the way that three does the, the formula, the, the pretty basic formula. Yeah. The only thing I really like about four is the ending. Like the ending I think is awesome, but I think it's very slow to get there. Although I will say that, you know, in the overall big picture of Friday the 13th and like horror movies and slasher movies, I love the fact that Jason is unkillable until he meets his mortal enemy, Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. Yes. <laughs> and even then, I mean, the the whole thing that I just find so funny is, you know, we, we can look back on these movies and laugh, but the fact that part four was the final chapter. Yeah. You know, this was the one that was gonna that was gonna end it all. <laughs> and then not only did it not end it all, they then had another movie later on down the line that was billed as the final Friday. <laughs> so Jason is unkillable in in many ways, and I think uh, that's something that Jason lives, you know, tries to tries to prove that not only is Jason an unkillable being, 
just based on him as as an enemy, but he's also just unkillable based on the fact that he makes money. They, yeah, these movies are always profitable, and again, that was the thing that the the critics were just upset about in the 80s. Like, why are people seeing these stupid movies, but they would always make money, and they keep cranking them out, and yeah, just one of the most legendary franchises in movie history, maybe not for the greatest reasons, but yeah, it's I think every one of them has made a profit. The interesting thing is, you know, we're going to be talking about how much we enjoy Jason Lives, but I have the numbers in front of me right now. Uh, Jason Lives is only the eighth highest grossing of all the Friday movies. Okay, well, I'm going to go through a, a history lesson here just because I want to. There's a lot of people that are listening to this episode have never seen these movies, and you're probably not missing much. But I will. <laughs> I'm going to give you a quick little overview why this one, Jason Lives, is a big deal. All right? Uh, I'm ready. School sucks, but, you know, the internet. <laughs> We've heard it before. Three joke. You've done that same joke three times. If you go four, you're disqualified. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if, it's like Friday the Thirteenth movies. I have to do six, and then it starts becoming fun again. All right. Well, here, sit there and pop and mother effing beer, and I'm gonna uh, go a history lesson here. <laughs> it's it's cool and it's legal. <laughs> All right. So the history of slasher movies are basically the first modern slasher movie is called Black Christmas. Came out 1970. Three, four, I forget the exact year. It was a Canadian movie. I did it on Staff Picks. It's like the second or third episode I did. Fan, really, I thought it was one of the best of the early episodes I did. So if you want to catch up on the history of slasher movies, go watch Black Christmas, which really pulls no punches and is a nasty little movie. And it's really well done. And it made, like, it didn't make any money. So even though it was the first influential movie, it didn't really do much. And that's why most people think the first slasher movie was Halloween, which came four years later. Halloween, like, was filmed on a budget of, like, $500,000 and made, like, $33 million or something. Like, it was, like, the most profitable movie ever. And so, every, like, when this movie made so much money, it spawned an entire genre of everybody trying to rip off Halloween for the next, you know, 20 years to, you know, <laughs> varying degrees of success. And I have not done Halloween on staff picks yet, um, I have a couple things to say about that real quick. A, it's not really a slasher movie. It gets blamed for a lot of crap. But there's not a drop of blood in Halloween. It's the most PG-rated suspense movie you're ever going to see, and it's crazy how much restraint it shows. And I think it's fantastic. I would say it's really the only great slasher movie there is. And then Halloween was replaced two years later by Friday the 13th, which is basically Halloween with much more gore and not as much skill put into it. Would you agree with that, Brian? Oh, oh, I would definitely agree. I think um, it, there's something to be said about the fact that uh, when people look at the Halloween franchise, they say that that number one will never be topped. Um, and then when people look at the Friday the 13th franchise, you know, I think it's pretty universally agreed that number one could absolutely be topped. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. so Friday the 13th is just a exploitation cash grab to try to get in on Halloween money. And then um, the Nightmare on Elm Street came after that. And these franchises got really super popular to the point, like I said, they're considered classic movie monsters now, which is definitely not what you would have said uh, 20 years ago. But Friday the 13th specific, I'm going to say the first one, Jason Voorhees isn't even in it, barely. He's just this kid at summer camp. Um, he's out swimming. He drowns and like he's a special needs kid. And his mom was horrified that he drowned and the counselors were having sex and not watching him. So when they try to reopen the camp a couple years later, she comes and kills a bunch of counselors and uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, that's the whole movie. It's, it's almost a mystery, although it's it's again, I think it's a piece of crap, but <laughs> hey, your mileage may vary. Some Friday the 13th fans may take offense at that. 
It's it's a, a a mystery where you don't even know that the character uh, that is the killer is a character until the last fifteen minutes of the movie. Yes, they they like didn't even do a Scooby Doo episode correctly. <laughs> like even in Scooby Doo, Old Man Withers, the amusement park operator, you meet him in the first scene, so at least that has structure. Friday the Thirteenth does not, because you do not meet Jason's mom until the last twenty minutes. Well, Jason's mom, her goal all along was to just scare everyone away so that she could just dig up the old treasure. <laughs> yes. So anyway, that's Friday the 13th. And again, Jason's not even in Friday the 13th. It's his mom. And then in part two, a couple of years later, they're like, well, that movie made money somehow. So we'll just do it again. And now Jason's back. And now all of a sudden he's alive and he starts killing people. And he kills people around Crystal Lake in part two and in part three. And then in part three, he gets a hockey mask. And then in part four, he gets he runs up against the, the dread Corey Feldman. Mouth from the Goonies takes out Jason Voorhees. And then, and that's four, and then four, four still made a lot of money, even though it was the final chapter, and then in five, a new beginning, they decide to resurrect Jason, but they couldn't because he was dead, so it's like faux Jason, it's a guy pretending to be Jason, and like the audiences hated it, it's like the biggest flop in the series, and then we come to six, and that's where we are here in history. Yes, that's where we are here in history. And, you know, a, a little known fact about part six was, you know, to go along with the whole Corey Feldman thing, they were going to have Data appear as a character in this movie. Um, but the actor, you know, was, you know, a little bit uh, busy with some of the uh, Indiana Jones exploits <laughs> and didn't really uh, want to commit to the Friday the 13th bit. Wait, so we almost had two Goonies in this franchise? No, I'm just making this, I'm just making this all up. I, I, you actually got me on that one. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got lots of tricks up my sleeve. No time for love, Mr. Voorhees. <laughs> Sorry. When, when, when is, when is Jason, part two Jason going to fight against uh, Sloth? <laughs> All right. So here's where we are. We're in 1986. We're at the sixth goddamn Friday the 13th movie. And the, uh, the, the producers say, well, let's do another Jason movie. And they're like, well, we can't because he died two, two movies ago. And they're like, you know, we don't follow logic in this series. How about we just bring him back to life? And so they basically come up with a movie where, and they go they go to this director. It's Tom McLaughlin, right? The guy who directed part six? Yes, Tom McLaughlin. And he was known for writing comedy movies. So he's an odd choice to start here. And they're like, bring Jason back to life. And Tom McLaughlin, like any sane movie director of his era, said, um... I'll do it if you want, but the series is starting to get a little ridiculous now, so could I make it a comedy? And they're like, well, you can, just don't make fun of Jason. And he's like, yeah, no problem. Everything else will be ridiculous, I'll make him serious. And that's where we end up with this movie, which, in many ways, and I'm going to get serious here, is the precursor to the movie Scream. This is like the first slasher movie where the characters are aware they're in a movie, they're aware of the conventions. They're aware of the Jason Voorhees myth, and they think he's just in movies. Like, it's it's really breaking the fourth wall, and that's why I think this movie's special, and that's why Kevin Williamson, who later wrote Scream, said the same thing. He's like, I was so inspired by Jason Lives because no movie had ever done that before. It was the first self-aware horror movie there was. Yeah, and I know um, you and I disagree about uh the quality of scream uh i fall on the end of the spectrum right i think it's a lot of fun and i, I really enjoy it and i know uh you're on the opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> and i know when we were talking about what we wanted to talk about for this podcast i i said that you know we should talk about the the fact that you think that jason lives works but you think that scream doesn't work and, and i was thinking about that i'm like well why 
Why would he think that? And I, and I think I know what the answer is. I would like to hear your answer, you smug little punk. Read my thoughts. <laughs> oh, well, here's, well, now if I get it wrong, then I'm going to look like an even more smug little punk. I'm just going to edit in something stupid to make you look bad anyway, so say whatever you have to. <laughs> so I would say that when the characters in Jason Lives are self-referential, uh, they do it more subtly. Like, I think the most blatant line like talking about horror movies is just one line when a character says, I've seen enough horror movies to know that a man in a mask is never friendly. Mm -hmm. Whereas in scream, it's very much in your face. We're going to have a scene in the video store where we're going to talk about the rules of horror movies and lay them out. And we're going to watch Halloween and talk about the rules of horror movies right in front of it and have Jamie Kennedy screaming, no, Jamie, no, look behind you, you know, when he's watching Halloween. And it's very much in your face, whereas in Jason Lives, it's it's a lot more uh, subtle and maybe less obnoxious. Okay, that's a good guess. And that's there's probably some of my thinking involved in that. And I've actually considered this question a lot because people ask me all the time, I like horror movies. I know, I know all of these dumb horror movies, like Inside and Out. I've seen them so many times. And they're like, you must love Scream. And I'm like, I could not hate a movie more than I hated Scream. I just don't like it at all. And I've been thinking about it all week. And here's my answer. This is a little different than what you say. When Friday the 13th is making fun of Friday the 13th movies, it's within the Friday the 13th timeline. Like, it's it's making fun of its own era. Scream came 10 years later, and it's like making fun of an era that it doesn't own. It's like mocking my era of horror movies, which I didn't appreciate. It's like these 90s teenagers making fun of all these movies that, you know, I grew up with. And even though I thought they were I thought they sucked, they were still mine. Like they I, they they belong to my generation. So to me, it was like I don't feel like Scream earned the right to mock this these movies because it was not of its own generation. I felt like it was it was cheap shotting a different generation and saying it was better than those old movies. So basically, to sum up your point, you just don't like being talked down to by Matthew Lillard. Yeah, exactly. That's thank you for crystallizing my thoughts eloquently. Yes. Crystallizing. Yes. But that's it. That's just that's just my scream to me. That's not those aren't the kids that I grew up with. That's like I'm in my 20s, mid 20s when I'm watching that movie. I'm like, who are these little 16, 7 year, 17 year old shits mocking my horror movies? Like only people my age get to mock my horror movies. So that was my problem with it. Now, do you think that Scream uh, has a little bit more validity to it because it's directed by Wes Craven? No. <laughs> well, I mean, do you think that the fact that the essentially one of the mouthpieces for it being one of the major slasher movie, you know, figureheads, do you think that helps contribute to it? Yes and no. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I'm really a Halloween guy. I just like the first Halloween movie. And then as a franchise, I like the Friday the 13th just because I like the iconic, the image of Jason and I like the summer camp setting. I don't really get into the, like the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. So I don't consider these things to be all equals. That's why to me, like it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me that he's saying stuff because I don't really, I don't think of these as all equal franchises. Okay. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me coming at it, from my perspective, A, I just find it interesting that there are so many teenagers in the movie Scream that are watching these horror movies because just knowing when I was a teenager, you know, kids my age liked to go watch The Conjuring and stuff like that. You know, I don't think anybody was going in and popping in Freddy versus Jason at any point. For me, I find Scream interesting because it's a product of a time period that I wasn't around for. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I kind of view that in the similar lens as the early Fridays, the early Halloween movies, yeah. as just you know a same. product of the same yeah, just like, right, just like a product of of a different era, you know. And I and I recognize that you know uh, Scream is is certainly not the same time period as as Halloween, mm-hmm. but I just kind of in my mind lump them together as you know just these these movies that are more foreign to me because you know I I don't initially have that. Uh, memories of them and and relationship with them but like you would like you grew up with these movies so you it holds a different uh you know you have a different perspective on it yeah to me they're totally different eras and that's why that's where the thinking comes in yeah no i think that's fair all right we have spent a good 30 minutes on preamble we haven't even talked about this movie yet yeah (laughs) a couple things i just want to throw out there before we delve into the quote-unquote plot of friday the 13th part six jason lives I love the fact that, again, the ridiculousness of this series is that people keep going back to this camp where everyone's slaughtered every summer, which you think eventually they'd learn not to go there. And I love that they actually attempt to work around that subplot in these movies, that in part three, they just rename the camp. It's no longer Crystal Lake, now it's Higgins Haven. And then in part six, now it's Forest Green. So that's their attempt to fool people into keep going back here. If we just don't call it Crystal Lake anymore, then no one will die there. So it's a there actually is an attempt to work around that plot hole. Well, I always thought, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I always thought that Higgins Haven was just a separate, just like location. Like it's not Camp Crystal Lake. It's just a location on Crystal Lake. So then these morons are just still going back to Crystal Lake then. Well, also, you have to think about the fact that part three picks up like the day after part two ends. <laughs> They've renamed it in one day. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be it. <laughs> but as far as as far as uh, the characters in, in three know, I mean, there's only been one massacre. And, you know, I mean, fool me once. Shame on shame on me, I guess. Well, yeah, you can make the argument that one through three plausibly could have happened. That's what I always say. And then four, it gets silly. And then six, we're going to have full-on zombie Jason. That's the one thing i got to get across to people. That's what happens is Jason will be resurrected via lightning like Frankenstein, and he will now be a zombie for the entire rest of the series. So that's where we're going here. Well, now I'm, I'm curious. You know, you always, you're talking about the iconic image of, of Jason standing there. When you're, when you're picturing that Jason, are you picturing zombie Jason, or are you picturing weird mountain man freakazoid jason my my personal favorite look is i love the guy in part two with the bag on his head i think he's personally the scariest but when (laughs) i dress up for jason and i pay very careful attention to detail it's always part six jason that i want to be he's my favorite jason and i know that's kind of blasphemy friday the 13th nerds are are you know storing to tear down this podcast now because i'm not giving homage to Kane Hodder who played Jason in part seven through I think like 46 or something (laughs) but my favorite is CJ Graham in part six that's the Jason I always want to be I think he's the best and he's got the little Batman utility belt that's my favorite little thing where he can keep his knives yeah my personal uh favorite version of Jason is when he's reverted into the form of a little child (laughs) cowering in the bottom of the New York sewers so when I dress up as Jason that's what I that's what I try to go for you dress up like a fetus in the sewer Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, I like to reach out of the mirror and just scare people. (laughs) So many things I could say, but I want to actually get into the plot of this movie. (laughs) Like you said, there's not not a lot to get into. No. All right. So two other things is that this movie, part six, is the only movie that ever, the only Friday the 13th movie that ever got decent reviews from critics just because it does something different and it starts mocking and becomes self-aware. And the other thing is I wanted to say was that, uh, 
we'll talk about this as we go through the plot. This is the only Friday the 13th movie that has no nudity in it. Yes. Like, this is the closest to a PG-13 movie you're going to get from Friday the 13th. There's not a lot of excess gore. There's no nudity at all, hardly any sex. It's very playful. Like, it really is feels like a different movie. It doesn't feel like the rest of the series, and that's why it just stands out to me, I would say. Yeah, and commenting on the gore, there's actually a lot of kills in this movie that were censored mm -hmm. by the MPAA. Like, in particular, there's a triple decapitation scene. Um, you know, I think if you look at the deleted scenes on the DVD, you can see the, the, full, the full scene where it shows the heads rolling off the bodies and onto the floor. But in the final cut of the movie... You don't even see the heads at all. You just see the bodies fall down. Yeah. I mean, it's no secret. The MPAA was always, you know, Friday the 13th was always number one on their hit list. They were always trying to tone it down. But again, yeah, this movie just feels so much more childlike and not gratuitous compared to some of the other ones. I think that's why it always just stands out to me. So are you ready to delve into the plot here? Oh, I, I'm so ready for the next five minutes of plot talk. <laughs> all right. So we start... In uh, Friday the 13th, Part 6, we are at Camp Forest Green, or in the general area, which used to be Crystal Lake. And it starts with this guy, Tommy Jarvis, who is the the guy who killed Jason. This would be Corey Feldman in his younger days. Two movies ago, killed Jason, and apparently he's been haunted by all these memories of what Jason did to his family, and Jason killing all these people, and Tommy's basically gone insane. And so the movie starts with him and his buddy driving out to the cemetery because they have to prove that Jason is still dead. Even though we know Jason's dead, Tommy is so crazy, he must prove to the world that Jason's really dead so his nightmares will stop. So basically he's going to go dig up the grave and prove it. So I will say, not a good strategy in any horror movie. No, and I think it's interesting to note that his friend, um, who I guess is implied to be one of his friends from his old mental institution, mm -hmm. is actually thinks that this is an insane idea. So somehow Tommy Tommy Jarvis has gone on the level where the insane think that he's being insane with what he's doing. <laughs> Do you know who his friend is, who his buddy is there? You might be too young to know him. Yeah, I might well, I may I, realistically I'm too young for uh, for a lot of these things, but <laughs> go for it. Okay, for our older crowd, there was a famous TV show in the 70s, Welcome Back Cotter, starring John Travolta. And the big standout on that show other than John Travolta was Ron Palillo playing a guy named Horshack who had, had the funny voice and just talked weird. And then he randomly shows up here as Tommy's sidekick in Friday the 13th Part 6. That's Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter, in maybe his only other movie role. Very exciting to see him be offed in the first three minutes of this movie. Well, I'll say even though he's he's offed within the first few minutes, he actually gives a, a, one of my favorite performances <laughs> of the movie. Um, like, I have, in my, I have in my notes here that he does a lot of just, like, weird physical stuff that I find a lot of fun. Uh -huh. Like... Um, there's a part where, where they're digging up the grave and Tommy says to him, Hey, can you, can you pass me the crowbar? And then he just crosses his arms and then just like looks in the opposite direction. And then two seconds later goes, okay, I'll do it. And then just picks it up and gives him the crowbar. Um, and it's just a lot of like little things like that are just the types of things that make this movie stand out because I think every character in this movie has a personality. Mm -hmm. Um, every character in this movie I think is funny. And I could probably tell you something about each character in this movie, which I, that's more I could tell you about Kevin Bacon in the first movie. <laughs> yeah. um, try, try telling me something about half the characters in part five. I mean, one of them likes chocolate bars. <laughs> uh, okay, he's fat. That was a guess. You didn't know that. <laughs> and the other one hates chocolate bars. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. The chocolate war, the great chocolate war of 85. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So, yeah. So Tommy digs up Jason Voorhees. And I love the ridiculousness of this scene is that Tommy has decided to bring a machete and a hockey mask with him. Yeah. So he's going to dig up Jason and then throw the tools Jason will need when he bring is brought back to life. And like Tommy fucks up worse than anybody else in this franchise. The guy I was sworn, I swore to defeat and end forever. I now brought back to life and gave him his tools back. So good job, Tommy. Yeah, not only is it a hockey mask, I'm pretty sure he's giving him back the hockey mask that he wore in in parts three and four because it has, you know, the signature uh, split in it. Um, it probably still has some of Shelly's blood on it. I was going to say, is that really what you do with a mental patient? Oh, here's the mask of the guy who killed your family and friends. Some of your mom's blood is probably in the corner of that mask. But here, here's a little souvenir. Well, at the end of, of part four, the, the mask gets knocked off. So maybe he just, you know, took it, put it in his weird uh, movie mask uh, uh, bedroom and just stuffed it in there. And Corey Feldman's got a lot of demons. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Well, Sam, we're not even talking about the movie. <laughs> wow, you're quick. <laughs> all right. All right, so anyway, yeah, so Jason, so they dig up Jason, and Tommy plunges a big metal rod from the, the fence post into his chest. There's a, a sudden burst of lightning out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, like Frankenstein's monster, Jason is brought back to life via the magic of electricity. Although he was chopped up into many, many pieces at the end of part four, so I'm not entirely sure how they all formed back together. I don't know if it was like some liquid metal from the Terminator or something, but... All of a sudden, Jason's back, and he's in one piece, and, hey, I got a mask and a machete again. Cool. Yeah, and I think not only is, is he in one piece, but I think they somehow go from him having no eyes when, when they show him in the coffin to yeah. now suddenly having eyes. Oh, cool. Because, cause like, his – well, at least maybe I'm, I'm looking at it wrong, but when they show his body in the coffin, it just looks like he just has eye holes, and there's nothing there. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he opens his eyes, and they're you know, fully like any other normal human eyes, so – I don't know what the regenerative powers of, of lightning are, but, you know, maybe they can create appendages. And surprisingly beautiful eyes. He has very sexy eyes. Yeah, and they're so beautiful, in fact, that it, it causes Jason to want to recreate uh, the famous James Bond uh, gun barrel sequence. <laughs> yeah. That's when you know you're going in a new direction in a Friday the 13th movie. That's literally how this movie starts, is Jason is resurrected by lightning, and then we get a James Bond opening <laughs> where he walks across the screen, turns, and slashes the camera, and you get all this blood going down the screen. And I'm like, we're in a different universe here. This is not the Friday the 13th we know. And I think it's interesting to point out, and that's going to go with uh, a big theory that I have, but when when he does the slash and we see the title appear, the first thing that appears is Jason Lives. That's mm -hmm. what's in big caps. And then it's it's not until a few seconds later when the whole Friday the 13th Part 6 appears underneath it. So it, it, the movie's basically saying, hey, Jason Lives is the title of this movie, and the Part 6 part, you know, that that's coming after. That's the subtitle. Wow. And, you know, I think it's interesting to note that with the exception of part seven, every other Friday the 13th movie moving forward has Jason in the title. Jason takes Manhattan. Jason goes to hell. Jason X. Freddy versus Jason. And that's a trend that really started with this movie. Uh, I think probably the Roy Burns backlash was was so fierce <laughs> that maybe uh, Paramount decided it would be better to just remind everyone, hey, uh, Jason is in this movie. 
Uh, for people who don't know, Roy Burns was the fake Jason in Part Five. So yeah, the the backlash was so strong that we had to bring him back. And yeah, he at this point now he becomes the star, is what you're saying. Yeah, and I I think uh, if you look at parts one through four, I mean, well, he's not really in part one, but if you look at two, three, and four, mm-hmm. Jason's just kind of an afterthought in those movies, I think. Whereas, you know, in basically every movie moving forward, you know, Jason is as much of a character as, huh. you know, any of these other characters. Like, Jason has a personality in a way. He doesn't have any dialogue. He doesn't have any lines. But they kind of give him his own personality where he's you know he's kind of fun and he's i guess in a way he's kind of like the straight man mm-hmm. i guess where with all these wacky characters that he's killing he's kind of the uh the 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 center of of seriousness and um you know how you mentioned earlier how the executives said to tom mclaughlin just don't make fun of jason don't make fun of jason and you know jason remains that kind of serious element that is able to ground the franchise. Well, there's another way I think you look at it too, is that in parts one through four, like he's someone to be feared. Like you're kind of supposed to root for the characters to somehow escape this death trap. But starting in six and seven, you're rooting for Jason almost like it really changes the way you watch these movies. I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about this movie is that I find the characters to be pretty likable Mm -hmm. and I find the characters in one through four to be very unlikable. So it's kind of created the opposite effect Hmm. where, you know, you want to root for the teenagers in the first few movies, but I just, they're just like so unlikable. That's like, well, why would you root for them? Mm -hmm. Whereas now that they've actually made an attempt to develop these characters and make them likable, you know, it is, you know, a a little bit sad when, when you see them go because, you know, you recognize their purpose. They're there to get killed, but you know, they weren't as, uh, outrageously obnoxious as some of the earlier characters were. And it's not like the low point in part five where you're openly rooting for the chocolate bar. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And to follow up on that part six does have my all time favorite Friday, the 13th victim and the one that I had a crush on the one that I, even to this day, I watch it. It pisses me off that she gets killed the way she does. And I think you can probably guess who we're talking about, but I'll, we'll get to her in a second. Yeah. I, 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 briefly remember you talking about this but we can we can get into that when we uh when we get yeah we're already one fifth of the way through the movie just through one scene it's amazing how few notes i have on a friday the 13th movie by the way <laughs> oh see it's amazing how many how many notes i actually have for a friday the 13th movie those you know uh how many podcasts i don't do when i uh i need to make a note about every small bit of dialogue that comes along so i can dissect it did you write a fictional backstory for every character like deputy rick well well Fun fact about Deputy Rick. Which will not be fun, I'm guessing. No, it's actually a lot of fun. Um, I, I don't know how much we get into to DVD commentaries about movies. I, I know just listening to your uh, Survivor All-Stars podcast, you go into the, the DVD commentary. For the DVD commentary for Jason Lives, the three people that do the commentary are Tom McLaughlin, the director and writer, uh, the head editor of the movie, and... The guy that played Deputy Rick. <laughs> what? He was available? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was their uh, their all-star cast they were able to bring together to, to talk about everything that went into this movie. <laughs> what does Deputy Rick think about this scene here? <laughs> well, it's funny because I think you can kind of tell by listening to the commentary that I don't think the other two guys really like Deputy Rick all that much because <laughs> he keeps trying to, like, interject and and point out things about scenes that he wasn't in. (laughs) 
and the other guy just kind of shut him down. <laughs> How would Deputy Rick have handled this? If he was in the scene, what would he do? Yeah, and he's talking about his whole backstory about how uh, he met Tom McLaughlin when he did a stage show about baseball. And and Tom McLaughlin wrote this part with the guy that played Deputy Rick in mind. There, there are some gems in these commentaries. Uh, I don't think you get a lot of new information in the Jason Lives DVD commentary, but you do get some more good uh, Deputy Rick interactions. For people who don't know this movie, Deputy Rick is this jackass assistant sheriff who has a gun with a laser pointer who's always pointing it at people, and he's got a catchphrase, which is, Brian, tell us his catchphrase. Ya bang. <laughs> ya bang. Wherever the red light goes, ya bang, which ya bang. is terrible. But I will point out, Deputy Rick survives this movie, does he not? Deputy Rick does survive this movie, and to to go along with your bang, somehow, if we can make it even more pathetic, is that in the DVD commentary, the guy that plays Deputy Rick actually says that his real-life catchphrase was, ya bang. <laughs> and so he decided to uh, incorporate that into the script of this movie. And thank God he did. Yeah, I mean... If, if Yabang wasn't in this movie, then this would probably be down there with the likes of Jason Goes to Hell. <laughs> so we can just list, at this point, all the famous survivors of Friday the 13th movies. You have Alice in the first one, uh, Ginny, is that her name in the second one? Yes. And her boyfriend, I think he survives too, technically, if I recall. Yeah, uh, I, I, it's kind of ambiguous what happens to Paul, but, um, you know, sure, we'll throw him on there. And the dog, the dog survived. Uh, Muffin? Muffin. Well, see, that always confused me because they showed Muffin's dead body at one point in the film. Okay. But then at the end, Muffin shows up at the shack. But I think that was during like the whole dream sequence. Ah. So Muffin, Muffin is definitely a question mark, I would say. Maybe Tommy Darvis dug Muffin up and resurrected him somehow. Let's see. And then three, Chris, that's her name, right? She survives. Chris Higgins. Chris Higgins. Oh, of Higgins Haven. I get it. Okay. Yes. And then in part four, Tommy Jarvis, Corey Feldman survives. And his sister survives. Okay. And then in five, I don't, Dudley from Different Strokes, I think. And then Trish, was her name Trish? I, I think it was Pam. Pam, that's right, Pam. And then we get six, and the survivors here, we have uh, the girl, uh, what is her name? The blonde Megan. girl. Megan. Megan, and we get... As as as, uh, as Deputy Rick says at, in one great line delivery, he goes, Megan? <laughs> that was a good line read. <laughs> You bang. <laughs> That's how uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier would have done it, just like that. <laughs> and then we have Tommy Jarvis and all the kids in the camp, and then Deputy Rick, the greatest survivor of all. Well, how could we forget uh, in in part three the uh, the random homeless man that's in the middle of the road that acts like Crazy Ralph, <laughs> but then we don't see for the rest of the franchise, who <laughs> shows them his eyeball. Okay. Getting back to this movie, something I just said, by the way, that the kids survived this movie. Here's a little trivia fact for you Friday the 13th fans out there. Part 6, Jason Lives, the only Friday the 13th movie where they actually have kids at the summer camp. It's the only one you see kids there, the entire franchise. And I think uh, Tom McLaughlin said that he did that because he wanted to raise the stakes of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, because there are some times in this movie where, you know, it, it goes on the edge of, hey, is Jason going to actually kill a kid? And he doesn't. He doesn't kill a kid. But, you know, it, it makes you it makes you think that at one point. And I think also the kids add to the whole fun of this movie because it makes it makes it feel a lot more juvenile because there are just a bunch of kids running around, too. 
And, you know, they give the kids some funny lines and stuff. You know, it's not like they're just there. They give them things to do. I do have to point out, not only has Jason never killed a child, he has actually been killed by a child. So going back to Corey Feldman, once again, defeating Jason Voorhees. Yeah, so I'm surprised Jason didn't kill the kids in this movie. He's like, he's zero for one when it comes to fighting children. <laughs> They're his kryptonite. He's unstoppable yeah. unless he's against somebody under 12. <laughs> All right, so Jason is now back to life, and he's coming back to town to kill everyone again. And Tommy runs into town, and he meets uh, Sheriff Garris and, and the aforementioned Deputy Rick. And they lock him up, as one would do when Tommy Jarvis says, Hey, I, did, I just dug up Jason. And they're like, No, you didn't. Lock him in jail. I just wanted to point out something with the sheriff, who is it was another standout character from this movie. I mean, he's, he's no Deputy Rick, but he's certainly up there. Uh, but when Tommy runs into the police station, the first thing the sheriff does is just pull his gun out on him. Because <laughs> that's how they roll in Forest Green slash Crystal Lake. You immediately pull the gun on the bystander walking in. Yeah, they, they train to shoot to kill there. <laughs> he almost got you banged. <laughs> well, if only he had a red dot to help him out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Tommy will be locked in jail quickly. And I guess we glossed over the fact that Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter got his heart pulled out. That's how he got killed. And uh, let's. so now we're going to go on the way to Crystal Lake, to Camp Crystal Lake, Camp Forest Green in this movie. And we have the counselors, the head counselors, Darren and Lizbeth, driving to camp. And they are going to meet Jason out in the woods in one of my personal favorite scenes in this movie. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that Lizbeth is one of your personal favorite uh, victims in this series. She's one, but she's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about later, Paula. Okay, yeah, because you said she was coming up. Well, the interesting thing about Lizbeth is she's actually played... Do you know who she's played by? Of course I know. That's the director's wife. Yeah. <laughs> oh, some fun trivia. Yeah, tell tell me, tell me the people the trivia on this scene. There's a lot of fun stuff in this one. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things about this scene. So basically, the premise is the two head counselors of this camp, Darren and Lizbeth. It uh, feels like it's missing a couple letters in there. Um, they're driving on their way to open up Camp Forest Green for the first time. And suddenly, Lizbeth gets surprised because she sees a mysterious man standing in the road. And as she says, she's seen enough horror movies to know that any man wearing a creepy mask is not a good sign. And some, something along the lines of that. Yeah, good advice. Yeah, absolutely. And so she tells Darren, I'm going to back up out of here. And Darren, uh, he has a different strategy to handle this situation. He thinks that it would be a better idea to ram the car into Jason because uh, he thinks that that will scare Jason and cause him to run away. Um, so Lizbeth puts her foot on the gas and drives towards Jason and stops right in front of him because the, the creepy man in the mask is not moving. And then what, what happens from that point forward is... I think another interesting thing about this movie that I really like is the fact that there is a debate between the characters about what the best way to handle the situation is. <laughs> um, like, I think a lot of the times in these slasher movies, the instinct is just run. And a lot of the times you have scenarios where it's just one person, the victim against the killer. And the situation is very simple. Victim runs, killer follows, killer wins. But now we have a situation where there's two victims and they're in a car and they have different philosophies about what to do and their immediate instinct isn't run. 
So Darren decides to pull out the lamest looking revolver in the world and shoot at Jason. Mm -hmm. This, of course, doesn't work. And Darren ends up with a uh, very interesting, uh, odd kill where Jason stabs him on, on like the crotch, I think. It's a crotch shot, yeah. Yeah, he stabs him in the crotch with the uh, fence spoke and then just throws him over his shoulder like he's like digging dirt or something. It's a caber toss. I don't know what that is. It's a Scottish Olympic game. Very obscure reference. Uh, yeah, see, I'm, I'm not that well-versed on my uh, Scottish Scottish <laughs> Olympics. Uh, as far, I, I, always, I only thought there were Greek Olympics. I wasn't aware of the, the Scottish Olympics. I like to educate our audience, especially during the Friday the 13th episode. Yeah. Jason smashes the windshield with the, 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 fence, the fence spike, and Lizbeth gets out of the car, and she tries to escape. But, of course, because it's a horror movie, she has to crawl on the ground, and she can't get her own footing, because that's what happens. And Lizbeth has an interesting tactic at this point, where she starts pulling out cash. The bribery. Yeah, she decides to bribe Jason, which is something that we've never seen happen before. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think it's something we really see in that many slasher movies to begin with, but I like it. I think it's cool. I think it's an interesting choice um, because I I imagine some people's real reaction would be to pull out cash and try to bribe the killer. But Jason Jason doesn't believe in that type of currency. Jason's Canadian. Yeah, Jason's Jason's Canadian, and he drowns Lizbeth with the the fence spoke. He stabs it into her head and and drowns her under the muddy water okay a couple cool things about this scene i love the uh elizabeth drives jason with her vw bug and then jason doesn't move and she stops right in front of him and she gives it gives it one of the best lines in the movie oh that really scared the shit out of him didn't it <laughs> which <laughs> this is the director's wife the director gave all his wife the best lines and then it, what what's interesting about the scene is the director almost killed his wife. I don't know if you heard about this on the commentary that Jason stabs his fence post through her windshield of her car, and she's supposed to duck to the right to avoid this this giant spear coming at her head. But the problem is that the guy they hired to play Jason, C.J. Graham, was a Marine, and he was trained in like in like weapons training. So like his instinct is when he sees the target move to move his shot. And so he, he instinctively moved the spear towards her head as it went down in the car, and he almost killed the director's wife live on camera. So just a neat little thing to watch for in the scene that the, the director's wife, and uh, what is her name, Nancy McLaughlin? Uh, I've read many interviews with her, and she will always bring up the fact that her husband almost killed her in the movie. Yeah, that was one part of the commentary that I zoned out on because it didn't have enough Deputy Rick talking, <laughs> uh, so I wasn't paying attention that much. And here's one more thing about this scene is that what why people will get people to appreciate how goofy this movie really is. When Nancy, when Lisbeth dies, she falls down in the, in the mud puddle and her hand opens up and all the cash she was trying to bribe Jason with comes spilling out of her hand. And the one thing that floats right in front of the camera is her American Express. It goes right across the camera really slowly. And the director even said, I've seen an interview, he said, the only reason I put that shot in there is because I wanted people in the audience to scream, don't leave home without it. So he intentionally set up a moment where he was going to get some audience interaction. Yeah, I actually, I, I never noticed that before, and I didn't know that that was a real story. I'm not uh, very familiar with American uh, Express slogans or catchphrases, mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know that that was a thing, but I'm sure to everyone in the 80s, that was uh, a real hoot. 
Oh, yeah. That's like entrapment. They're in trying to entrap you into quoting the TV commercial for American Express. So, And that was very much intentional. The director gleefully points it out in all, all his interviews, how, how that's a shot. He, he really wanted the audience to talk to back to the screen right there. Yeah, I think I think also uh, they say that Nancy, I'm assuming her name is Nancy, uh, Nancy McLaughlin actually did her own stunt for this. Um, so when they were pushing her head under the muddy water, that was that was actually happening. And she had like a scuba mask or something that was, you know, getting filled with all this disgusting muddy water. My wife would not let me do that to her, push her head underwater for a movie and just make her breathe through a tube just to get the shot right. So more power to the relationship of Tom and Nancy McLaughlin that she, she had the trust to allow her husband to do that to her. Well, it's just like uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween when you see some of the things he made his wife do in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Wives are good sports. That's the the lesson that we learned here. Yeah, the only lesson to be learned from Friday the 13th Part 6. All right, so the head counselors have been killed, Darren and Elizabeth, and without them going to camp, now all of a sudden the CITs, the counselors in training, have no idea what to do when the kids arrive, and this is going to be kind of the comic premise of the movie, that you have all these helpless counselors that don't know what they're doing, and we meet them in the next scene. This is where we have uh, Sissy and Court, and Megan, and my favorite, Paula. We'll be getting back to Paula in a second. There's really not much to say about this. We have four inexperienced counselors at camp, and then a bunch of kids arrive, and, and they're way, in way over their head. And we're going to get some comedy here before the killing starts. Yes, and we first see the CITs uh, when they arrive at the police station. And there was one quote in particular that I, I wrote down from that scene where they mentioned driving out to... Uh, a specific road. Do you remember the name of the road? I don't, but it's a horror movie homage, isn't it? Uh, they want to drive out to Cunningham Road, uh-huh. uh, which uh, I'm assuming is probably based off of the original director of the original Friday the 13th, Sean Cunningham. Yeah, there's a reference to him. Later, there's a reference to Carpenter. There's a couple references in this movie to famous horror directors. So, yeah, that's, that, that's very much intentional. Yeah, and I think... Um, in the DVD commentary, they mentioned how uh, the store at some point, I think it was named after like Boris Karloff yeah, or something Karloff's, like that. Karloff's uh, feed mill or something like that. It's some little granary. Right. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so Tommy's in jail and he keeps saying stuff like, oh, Jason's back. Jason's going to come back and kill everyone. And, and he, there's a quote here. Jason will return to the place that's most familiar to him. So apparently Tommy's like an ornithologist at this point. He knows all the mythology of Jason. He knows how it works. And I just love that Tommy Jarvis, who admittedly is crazy and has been in a mental institution, apparently knows all about how we're going to do how we're going to solve this. Later on in the movie, Tommy's going to go down some weird paths to try to find ways to defeat Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's an, uh, a scene later on in the movie that I think is completely pointless uh, where he starts reading books about the occult. <laughs> yes. Um, where like we see him in his car and he ha- has recently purchased three different books about like the occult and you know that doesn't really go anywhere because he decides to kill Jason in a very non-magical way. <laughs> so I wasn't really sure what the point of that was. Um, it could just be another sign of Tommy Jarvis just not being all there. And when did he have time to buy those books? This entire movie, yeah. Tommy's in jail or racing to camp, yet somehow he finds time to stop at the occult bookstore in Forest Green, which I wouldn't even assume they'd have one because it's a small town. But yeah, where does he even get these books? Yeah, and this is also the same guy who needed Megan to help him gather supplies. <laughs> uh, he might he might have blown all his money on his <laughs> occult books. 
his his forest green library card. Uh, it it use that. Hope they're not overdue. Well, thank God it was still good. His library card with all that time he was spent away in the sanitarium. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is where we meet one of the other side characters. Again, a lot of these a lot of these characters are pointless. There's no reason, as with many of the Friday the Thirteenth movies, there's no reason for them to exist. But we meet Martin the caretaker, who's the drunk guy who's been watching the grave where Jason has been dug up. And again, the director is just just so gleeful in this movie, pointing out how how the characters know they're in a movie and how they break the fourth wall and they'll turn to the camera. This is where Martin literally he's digging up Jason's grave and or he's burying all the the dirt back in it and he's mad that someone dug up his prize you know tenant in his in his cemetery. And Martin literally turns to the camera and says, "Some folks have a strange idea of entertainment." Which is, the director even said, I'm commenting on the fact that people watch these stupid movies. And he has a character literally telling the audience, why are you even watching this movie? So that's the little stuff, again, why it became later uh, influential in Scream, little things like that. Yeah, I think the, the full quote he says is, why'd they have to go and dig up Jason? And then he looks at the camera and says, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. So he's referring to Jason's body, but he's also definitely referring to the fact that they're digging up Jason for more of these movies. And they're just flat out saying it. That's what's hilarious. Yeah. And there was another good quote that Martin had that I wrote down from this scene. Uh, it's not it's nothing meta, but I, I just thought it was a, a, a funny dig where he's talking about the fact that he's going to get in trouble because there was a, a grave that was def- defaced or whatever. And he says, I deserve this job. I'm a damn high school graduate. I earned it. <laughs> And so I'm not sure who that's supposed to be bagging on, but it's, I think it's bagging on someone here. <laughs> He's talking about these people that just locked into caretaker jobs. Not him. He earned it. His is all merit-based. <laughs> None of the uh, nepotism in the, in the uh, cemetery caretaker industry. <laughs> I love that Martin gets to monologue. <laughs> so we're going back to camp now, and you know, again, all the CITs are trying to deal with these kids that arrived, and... And here's where we get probably the most famous scene in this movie, the paintball scene. <laughs> Which There's no reason for this scene to exist. It just exists because the director thought it was goofy and because we needed a couple more kills to up the body count. Where literally it's just a bunch of corporate executives out in the woods playing paintball and they're about to get massacred by Jason. They're in a really bizarre and goofy scene. Yeah, I think um, the director said it at some point that he wanted to include the scene because he just wanted to capitalize on the uh, the success of paintball at this time. So it was a crossover. Yeah, I, I don't really know uh, how how popular paintball was during 1986. Yeah, I don't remember it until the 90s. So I'm shocked that it was a big deal in '86. Well, Tom McLaughlin was always ahead of his time. So <laughs> yes. Yeah, and another thing about this scene is that uh, the director also said that he wanted to include this scene because he wanted an excuse to have Jason like acquire a bunch of different interesting like items. A paintball gun. Well, like this is the scene in the movie where Jason gets his machete. He gets it from the characters playing paintball. So I think he wanted to incorporate uh, some more paintball items in it. But ultimately I think, you know, probably the most important uh, thing that the scene does for the plot is it, Gives Jason his machete. Wait a minute, didn't Tommy throw a machete into the coffin? He was using the fence spike the entire time, right? Okay, uh, for some reason I thought Tommy threw... So, did Jason have a machete and then he lost it and had to get another one? Like, did Jason's mom have to remind him where he put it? 
Maybe maybe he never did. I might be wrong about this. Well, I think up to this point he's he's because he killed Tommy's friend with his with his hands, uh-huh. and then he killed the the other two characters with the with the fence spike. Mm-hmm. Not shot. Yeah, and then after he kills, I think the guy's name is Bert, but maybe that's not his name. Yeah, Bert. Uh, after, yeah, after he kills Bert, he he takes his machete because Bert was using the machete at that point. Okay. All right. So there is a logical reason for this scene to exist. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Jason already has machete, and this is just like a video game where now you know there's a little item box where there's a two next to the picture of the machete. <laughs> I mean, it would make sense in these movies if Jason has little treasure boxes hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So Jason comes and he's fighting these paintballers, and like he rips Bert's arm off and he shoves Bert into a tree. And I love the little shot that when these paintballers have when they get shot, they have a little headband that says "dead" that they put around their forehead. And so when Bert gets run into a tree, we focus on him wearing the dead headband, which I appreciate the bluntness of that joke. Well, not only is he wearing the dead headband, but he also leaves uh, a smiley face imprint into the tree (laughs) because if there's one guy who was smiling it was bert yeah this is the same character who i think we've only seen 10 seconds of this guy total in this movie and all he was doing in that 10 seconds was chopping at uh the the trees or whatever and complaining about how um women yeah he's complaining about his female counterparts and some of their uh uh, roles that he thinks they should have. I think the exact phrase was dumb broads. Yes, and I think he also he also said should have stayed in the kitchen. So a little backstory on our friend Bert who's killed. And then we get the, the uh, infamous triple beheading that you talked about earlier with the three executives where Jason slices them all off, their heads off all, one, all in one shot, but we don't see anything because the MPAA got their hands on it, so it's all implied. And then we get the, the comic cherry on top of the Sunday here where there's this nerdy guy named Roy who is basically, I don't even know how to describe him. He's like he's like one of the guys out of Revenge of the Nerds. He shows up here and he, he faces Jason, Jason against the nerdy paintball. And the guy tries to shoot Jason with the paintball gun to stop him. And Jason just looks down at the paint splatter and kind of looks up and, and Roy's like, oh, no, and runs away. And it's just this goofy little chase scene that, again, never seen anything like this in a Friday the 13th movie up to this point. Well, I have to say my personal favorite Roy moment is when he, he breaks a branch off of a tree uh-huh. and then he tries to put it back into the tree. <laughs> little shtick from, from Roy in the, out in the woods. He's sticks with with sticks. Yes. Okay, so anyway, we we lose all the paintballers, and Jason's getting the upping his kill ratio already, and and all this time Tommy's trying to prove to the sh- sheriff that Jason's back. Blah blah blah. I'm not even gonna get into that because it's boring. But we are gonna go into the world's greatest transition between two scenes here, and I think you know which scene I'm gonna talk about. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I will let you, I will give you the honor as my guest in my home. You get to explain the greatest transition in a Friday the 13th movie ever. So we cut back after a few pointless scenes to our favorite character, Martin the Caretaker, and he's back to digging his graves, and he's just been yelled at by the sheriff because one of the graves was messed up. And he says to himself and also to the massive audience that is sitting in the theater watching this movie, he says... Dig him up? Does he think I'm a fart head? And then immediately after that, before we even cut away from Martin, we just hear the sound of children screaming, Yeah! 
and we cut to the kids celebrating at Camp Forest Green. If you have not seen this movie or you haven't watched it recently, I'm going to do my best to get that transition and put it either right here in the podcast or at the stinger at the end because it's so ridiculous and hilarious the way it just pops up. Dig him up. Does he think I'm a farthead? Yeah! It's like watching Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it's like... I, I know that the sounds of, of the children saying yeah are, are actually the children saying yeah, but it sounds like the most generic and canned children yeah sound effect I've ever heard. <laughs> but the fact that it's like actually organic is 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 kind of amazing. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the kids are back at camp. These little kids are at camp now. and They're having fun and they're learning how to do scouting things with the counselors. I'm I'm sure you have something to say about Court, who is the main male counselor going out teaching the kids uh, Boy Scout stuff, because I know from our pre-interview, you yourself are an Eagle Scout. So I'm sure you've been through this exact training, the, the rock marker training. <laughs> yes. As, um, as Sissy says, her favorite sport is Boy Scouting, um, which... Actually, now that I said it, I now understand the joke. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I, when I first when I first heard her say that line, I said, "Well, that seems like a sex joke, but it seems a little pervy." And now I fully realize the joke. So I'm glad we went through this. Yeah, that's actually one of the sports in the Scottish Olympics, also. Yeah, boy, boy scouting. <laughs> yes. I believe they call it lad scouting there. But after we're done uh, with the the girls at the camp, we we cut to court. And Court, just to give you a visual picture, uh, he, he wears his headphones with him all the time. He has these very ripped up jeans that expose uh, not only his knees, but like a few inches above and below his knees. And uh, he doesn't seem like he's he's all that bright. And he's with all the little boys at the camp and he's showing them a very important skill. And that skill is teaching them about Indian markers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I can attest, uh, having earned the Indian lore merit badge myself, <laughs> that uh, everything that court says is extremely accurate. And uh, we actually had to do a write-up on Indian markers ourselves as part of the merit badge. And just like court describes, I wrote down how with, with these uh, Indian leaders, when the chief would leave uh, his squaw, the son would be left alone with the squaw and he would be very upset. Uh, but he wanted to go hang out with his father, who was with a new squaw. So the chief would leave these little uh, collections of rocks stacked on top of each other in the middle of the woods so the son would know where to go find the chief so that they can go hunting together. Wait a minute. So the son, the son, he knows his dad is off with a woman and he wants to go hang out with him as his dad is banging some woman. So is this really the room? Is he Denny from the room? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, hi, Danny. <laughs> well, the real thing with the Indian markers, you know, they don't they don't tell you that in the scout handbook. Yeah. But the son of the chief actually owed a lot of money to uh, Longfeather R. Um, and he needed he needed to get away from that. Uh, so he uses that as a guide to uh, to help him get back to his, his his chief father. What kind of rocks? What kind of rocks, squaw? <laughs> I think I screwed up the gender there somewhere. But anyway, yeah, we, we, we do our room references. Okay. So, yeah, so all the Boy Scouting, again, this is, none of this is relevant to the plot. We're just killing time to make a full podcast out of this one. Yeah. 
but so uh, a bunch of people get killed and the caretaker get killed, blah, blah. And now this is where we get, you know, the kids at camp and they settle in for their first night and Jason is coming to the camp to murder everybody and it's going to start getting tense. Although there's a couple wonderful little, okay, wonderful slash stupid jokes coming up in the scene. One of them is that one of the kids, it's a visual joke the director put in the movie, one of the kids is reading a book and he's dozing off to sleep and the book is No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre. So I appreciate that there's a no exit joke in a Friday the 13th movie that the kids are not going to leave camp. And the director thought, you know, I think that would be a hilarious reference to put in a movie that the kid would be reading that. I I did catch that. And I have no idea what that book is about. Um, I'm sure it's probably uh, way too, way too advanced for my mind. I think the last the last book that I read was when it was worth playing for, which I did my uh, uh, senior senior year summer reading on. Hey, that's my book. Wow. You just plugged my book. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I get a, a podcast spot on the most coveted of all of them. I figure I might as well give back to the gracious host. Well, No Exit, I believe, is an existentialist book, which is the exact book that a nine-year-old child would be reading at summer camp. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the little girl was always big into, uh, into Nietzsche. <laughs> yes, these are very bright kids. It's like a gifted kids camp, apparently. Yeah, the, the kids are so bright that uh, I think the next kid that it cuts to in the scene, we see a little girl... Uh, who has a little notepad next to her. Mm -hmm. And um, do you know what she wrote on the notepad? I have no idea. Is it like poetry? What's she doing? She wrote down uh, (laughs) in little child handwriting, Dear Mommy and Daddy, I got to camp today. It was fun. (laughs) And that's all it says. Maybe it's not the gifted kids camp. I take that back. And then I think also one thing that always confused me with this movie is the hamsters? Yes. There's a lot of hamster footage in this movie. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure who brought their hamsters to camp. Okay, let's let's talk about this. Let's delve into this. This is a goofy camp. Uh the kids <laughs> live in a big long house and there's like a fire burning in the fireplace unattended at all times. Because that's what you do at summer camp. You leave the kids with a fire unattended in their house. Well, all the kids have their fireman's chit with them, so. And there's hamsters, like hamsters and wheels and stuff. And I know Court didn't go out and buy these hamsters, so where did the hamsters come from? This is not realistic to any summer camp I've ever been to. Also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this camp supposed to be just over the course of one weekend? Uh, I would assume so, because they only have three counselors. They'd have way bigger staff if it was longer. Well, because I think that there's one point where Megan says, who's ready for a fun weekend where we're going to fish and and do all these things and not eat Brussels sprouts? So I've always been under the impression that, like, this was just a camp that, like, it lasts, like, three days. Okay. So that's why that's why I was always confused about the hamsters, <laughs> because I'm like, what kid brought the hamsters to camp? Like, could, you know, do they not have parents? Like, did they... <laughs> They need someone to take care of the hamsters in the meantime. Well, you know they don't have good parents because this is the camp where every child gets slaughtered every summer. So the fact <laughs> that the parents are sending their kids to this camp to begin with means the parents are already making questionable choices. They pay. Listen, they pay a lot of money to go to Camp Forest Green. For two days. Yes. <laughs> to learn from the best, like, court. So speaking of court, I think it's about time for a nice court death scene. Yeah, and I think Court has well, a, a very bad 15 minutes, uh, a very bad last 15 minutes of his life, uh, because when we come back to Court, he's now found his way to, looks like an RV or a camper of some sort, 
And um, he is participating in the only sex scene of this entire movie. A nudity-free sex scene, we should point out. Yes, and, you know, I know we, we touched on this earlier about the fact that this is the only Friday the 13th movie without any nudity mm-hmm. in it. And I actually uh, have an interesting past when it comes to the nudity in these slasher movies. Oh, do tell. Oh, okay. Well, I first started these watching these movies probably when I was around, I'll say like 14, 15 years old. When it came time to watch movies like Friday the 13th or Halloween, and there would be many, many a shot of some uh, inappropriate body parts, uh, I would be sitting here by myself in my basement, and I decided because I didn't want to ruin my my precious young virgin eyes, mm-hmm. I thought the best thing for me to do would be to just cover my eyes during these scenes. So as a, uh, a 14, uh, 15 year old watching these movies, whenever uh, the slightest bit of nudity came on screen, I would cover my eyes. The best way I could describe it is like in part four when Tommy Jarvis sees uh, the the kids across. <laughs> that was that was you peeping. That, yeah, that was me. I would see it and then I would immediately shove my face into my pillow because I'd be like, what is happening right now? Um, so it was much to my pleasant surprise to be watching Friday the 13th part six, Jason lives and see that there is not a single inappropriate body part in this entire movie. I could watch this slasher movie as a 15 year old and not worry about seeing nudity and not have to cover my eyes at any point. So people getting like an ax to the forehead, that didn't bother you. It was nudity. Well, it wasn't that I was bothered by it per se. I mean, it was more of just a sense of like, wow, my, what would my mother say if she saw me watching this movie? She would be very disappointed in me. Okay. Um, so I decided to that it would be best for me to maintain my innocence and uh, uh, and feel better about myself by covering my eyes. Now, do you not cover your eyes now? Have you learned to actually watch and enjoy the beauty that is the female form? Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go back to court here. There's a couple things I want to yes. talk about this scene. So there is the one sex scene in the movie where Court and his girlfriend are out in a Winnebago and she's on top of him. And it's, again, it's very tastefully done. There's no nudity. But I will say the director even put another little joke in here that I absolutely love. And I didn't even catch it until I was listening to an interview with him the other day. Is that after Court and the girl have nudity-free sex, they're they're detangling from one another. And Court reaches under the blanket he's laying under and you hear a little snap which is Court removing the condom that he had on. And the director even said, I intentionally put that snap in the scene because I wanted to let kids know to have practice safe sex because I wanted to be a responsible filmmaker and show that even Court practices safe sex with a condom. So that's to the little jokes that the director put in there. Wow. I, I, that, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I guess uh, being, being a child uh, that didn't know a lot about uh, these, these types of subjects, I, I hear a snap and... My mind does not go to the the, the thought of condoms being uh, taken off. Well, that's the difference between you and director Tom McLaughlin. The only the only difference. Court and his girlfriend are you know in the Winnebago and they start driving around and it's this kind of creepy scene. They know Jason's out there. They don't know where he is and they start fleeing because they hear a noise and he ends up inside the Winnebago in one of the big signature pieces of this movie. And I should say we have Alice Cooper playing on the radio while they're in the RV. They're driving down the street and. The girl, her name is Nikki. Jason pulls her into the lavatory in the mobile home and pushes her face through the wall, a la like pin art, which is just a really weird way to kill somebody. 
Yeah, the the best way uh, I could describe it is like uh, in that scene in the original Nightmare on Elm Street where like Freddy like comes out the wall. That's what I always think it looked like. Tom McLaughlin was saying in one of his interviews that when he decided on the kills for this movie, he wanted to make most of them uh, so out there that people wouldn't want to recreate them. Uh, so, and then the, the, the clip that they show as he says this is this kill scene. Um, so we get such exciting moments like this uh, because Tom McLaughlin didn't want to encourage people to do bad things, which goes along with the whole condom thing. I cannot tell you how many times I recreated kills as a kid from Friday the 13th movies. That's just what we all did. You would recreate your favorite kills. It was an epidemic. Yeah, I remember when I shoved my, my friend's face into uh, liquid nitrogen. Well, I shot a couple girls in the eye with the spear gun, and I used to get in trouble at school. They're like, Mario, you're going to get detention if you keep doing that. <laughs> Long live Vera. <laughs> she was gone too soon. <laughs> yes. I've thrown a lot of my friends into the electrical circuits in my basement. I mean, it happens. That's the thing. So thank God director Tom McLaughlin was encouraging us not to do that. <laughs> so anyway, Court's driving away, and his girlfriend's been killed inside the Winnebago, and Court ends up getting a knife through the head in a uh, kind of a very comical non-blood way, and the Winnebago goes crashing over to the side. It's, it's kind of a cool stunt. It's like the one big stunt in the movie. And, uh, yeah, that's it for Court. Uh, die, as you said, he, he left us too soon. Yeah, and I, I think the, the really saddest thing about Court's death is that in the last few minutes that he's on screen – He's, like, monologuing to himself the entire time. <laughs> he's doing Shakespeare. Yeah, his his girlfriend's, like, in, in the back getting killed by Jason, and he's just sitting there to himself listening to this Alice Cooper music, and he's going, oh, this is, this is great. I'm having such a great time. <laughs> and he's saying this to no one in particular. <laughs> and then I guess Jason decided that the best way to uh, to put him out of his misery would, to make, would be to make it so he can't listen to any more Alice Cooper. So he just sticks a knife through his ear. Yeah. <laughs> so... All right, so blah, 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 stuff happens. Counselors get killed. Sissy ends up getting her head twisted off. Let's let's talk a little bit about my favorite. We're going to get to Paula here. I have a lot to say about Paula. <laughs> let's do it. Let's hear it. So Paula is one of the characters in this movie, one of the counselors, and she's a very sweet girl. She is the the sweetest of the counselors. She's constantly going to the little kids and calming them down and being nice to them and giving them little speeches how they're going to be safe and she's going to protect them. And what's interesting is that in any other Friday the 13th movie, she would be the girl that survives because she's the nice one. And it kind of pisses me off what they do to her in this movie. That not only does she not survive, she gets the most brutal death of anybody. Yeah, when she when she gets killed, we don't really see it. We just kind of see the, the blood splatter. Uh-huh. But then when we later come back to the cabin, we see that there's blood literally all over like every bit of this cabin. Yeah. Um, so Paula, Paula really, you know gets massacred here okay and i gotta say the actress that plays paula you won't know this you're too young but she her name is carrie noonan and she was one of these girls growing up i had a crush on she was only in a couple things and like uh she was one that i always remember she's in this one she plays paula she's in an episode of the new twilight zone called a message from charity where she plays a pilgrim girl who can talk to telepathically to a boy in the 1980s and it's really a sweet story and then she retired she didn't do any more acting but like a big shout out to Carrie Noonan here, my all-time favorite Friday the 13th victim. Just ticks me off how sad it is when she dies. It's like the only character you ever feel bad about in any of these movies because she's so nice to the little kid. And Jason not only stalks her and scares her, then he like 
explodes her or something. I don't know how he gets that much blood out of her where she basically explodes all over the cabin. She's thrown through a window very violently. It's just brutal. And like I said, it's the only Friday the 13th death that really has ever pissed me off. I'm like, Paula did not deserve that. Paula should have been the final girl. Yeah, it's interesting because we see a lot of scenes of, of Paula comforting the kids. Yeah. Like there's 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 one particular uh, kid named Nancy who acts as like the voice of all the kids. Mm-hmm. And she always sees Jason. She gets really scared. And there's a scene where Paula talks to her and she says, well, you know, whenever I get scared, I just close my eyes and pray. And then all the, the bad things go away. And this ends up being something that Nancy actually does later on in the movie. So she takes Paula's advice. And it ends up working because clearly she survives and clearly Jason doesn't kill her. Mm-hmm. So Paula, you know, even beyond the grave is, is is making an influence on these on these impressionable young children. So Paula is basically Obi-Wan Kenobi, that she must die so they may live. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is that Paula deserved a lot better. I, and if I had rewritten this screenplay, Megan would have died at the end, the blonde girl. Paula would have survived because Paula's the one who has all the all the lines, all the dialogue, all the airtime. She's the star of the movie. So hashtag justice for Paula. And I, I'm I'm hoping to encourage other Friday the 13th fans to take up in this endeavor that I've. I, I mean, this is a crusade I've had for over 30 years now that I, it pisses me off what they did to Paula. Tom McLaughlin, shame on you. I've also an underreported story about Paula is that Lizbeth is actually her sister. Yes. She's very important to the plot. Yeah, so the 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 parents of of Paula are really in for a rough weekend uh when 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 they find out what happened at Camp Forest Green. Yeah, Lizbeth is now headless in a puddle of of mud and Paula exploded. They're never going to find her body. <laughs> like whatever their last name is, that that weekend would have sucked for that family. Yeah. All right, so all the counselors are dead at the camp basically now, and it's just the kids and Jason, and this is where all Tommy escapes from jail with Megan's help and the sheriff and, and Deputy Rick, of course, is, is somehow <laughs> you bang. Yeah, you bang somehow in the heroics. Yeah. Well, well, they escape because they, they trick Deputy Rick. Uh, what? Where it's, it's this like bizarre plan where Megan is, is drawing pictures to Tommy and then – she goes up to Tommy and kisses him, and then Deputy Rick gets so mad at this that he runs over, but then they, she pulls the yabang gun on him. And I think even at one point Tommy says yabang to be like, huh, we you know, we just pulled a fast one on you, Deputy Rick. And then Deputy Rick just sulkingly walks into the jail cell and gets locked inside because he got his his iron mind got outwitted by Tommy Jarvis. He's got a great line read there, too, where Tommy Jarvis takes Megan's sketchbook and Rick's like, I'll get it for you, babe. <laughs> he was always he was it was a, the cool cat of the Forest Green police force. But again, him getting outwitted and locked in the cell is what saves his life. So let that be a lesson to you, kids. Sometimes it's not the smartest ones who survive. Sometimes it's the ones that get themselves locked in a jail cell. <laughs> Those who live by the yabang die by the yabang. Another great line by Deputy Rick is when he realizes that he's been tricked, he, he, he yells in, in Tommy's face. He says, you little turd. <laughs> not only is this movie toned down, they like there's not even much swearing in it. They're using fart head and turd. Like, it's really just, it's a PG-13 Friday the 13th, honestly. Yeah, I think the sheriff drops drops an F-bomb at like one point. But <laughs> other than that, this is a, a very clean movie. Yeah. And and I do I do have to say, 
as as Megan and Tommy Jarvis are leaving the station, Deputy Rick's last line, I believe the entire movie is he's he's just yelling at Megan to let him out. And he goes, Megan. And you're probably not going to get this joke, but the the young Drake and Josh fan in me uh, always appreciated uh, that. Deputy Rick was able to to channel their their energy and their excitement uh, twenty years ahead of ahead of the show. That's right. We have references for all ages in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> just wait till so I start making Team Umizumi references for the the under fives. <laughs> so we're gonna rush back to Camp Forest Green, and here's the big finale where Jason's been killing people, and now it's just him and the little kids, and everybody rushes there, and they're trying to save the kids, and Jason. Like, like you said, the director wanted to put kids in peril because we've never seen little kids in peril in one of these movies. And Jason literally bursts into the cabin with all these little girls, and he's, like, staring at one right in her face. And this is that – what's her name? Nancy. Nancy, yeah. So he's staring at Nancy. And she starts praying as our hero Paula taught her to do, and Jason leaves her alone. And so the prayers saved her, and it's a nice little scene. But it actually – is a little bit of menace in this movie where little kids are in danger and you don't see that honestly in friday the 13th movies also going along with the praying thing there's also some like very strange like religious aspects of this movie uh-huh. um like i i think this is the only friday the 13th movie that, that ever mentions prayer or god in any way and there's actually a deleted scene from the end of the movie where nancy looks up at the sky and whispers thank you wow yeah, and, and that that ended up being cut. Tom McLaughlin wanted that in. So there's there's some like strange like religious things in this. I'm not really sure what they wanted to do with it, but it's you know another thing that makes this movie stand out. Well, you know, this was the one Friday the Thirteenth movie that the Pope actually blessed and said he was in favor of it. Yeah, I just remember when uh, the Mormon Church uh, and their and their several wives decided to rent out. <laughs> Uh, a theater in Salt Lake City to go and, and do a viewing of this movie because it was, you know, for for everyone of, of every re- religious background. Yeah, it was surprisingly spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, atheists. Okay, so the end of the movie comes and Tommy Jarvis eventually gets back to camp and, and Jason is trying to kill everyone now. And Jason, what, he snaps the sheriff in half. Sheriff Garris is bent backwards, which... They always tout that as one of the best kills in the Friday the 13th series, but it looks really fake. I've never liked that one. You don't see very well. It's it's kind of comical looking. Yeah, yeah, that's it's definitely not my favorite. I think also, you know, I mean, the character of the sheriff was uh, he was one of the better characters within this movie and and you know, he put up a good fight at the end. You know, we see him kicking and punching Jason. Mm-hmm. And then he, he kind of goes out, you know, in a pretty un, unceremonious way, I think, yeah. with that snap. He goes out like a bitch, as they say on the streets. Yeah, he he goes out like uh, like a branch that Roy would just break off the tree. So yeah, the sheriff's dead, and Jason's trying to kill Megan and all the kids. And this is where Tommy Jarvis, the new uh, master of the occult, has figured out the one dark way to summon a demon back to hell is you take a big rock and you tie him to it. Well, the real way to summon him to, to hell is is to call him maggot head <laughs> yes. uh, and chicken shit. And then it, the funny thing is that Jason actually buys this. So I guess like somehow Jason has like turned into Marty McFly where <laughs> he's a chicken. Yeah, he gets he gets these ch- like childlike insults hurled at him and he's suddenly like super insulted by it. Yeah. When I was a kid, my friend Brian and I used to watch all these movies and Brian used to just die laughing at the end of this movie because, yeah, Tommy is literally just insulting Jason with all these playground insults and Jason gets so mad he has to come after him. It's, yeah, yeah, maggot head, chicken shit, and then the one, Jason, you pussy. 
Yeah. <laughs> Tommy has this weird accent that shouldn't exist, but it does. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to comment on that because I, I don't know if that's the way that the actor talks. I didn't want to be mean to the guy, but I was watching this movie and I'm like, wow, he just talks very strange this entire movie. We were just watching it in, my, in our living room the other day. I was taking notes and my wife hasn't seen this movie before. She has no idea what's going on. And she, her only comment is, that guy talks weird. He has a weird accent. <laughs> yeah, and, and the funny thing is, with, with that actor, his name is Tom Matthews. Uh -huh. And I was curious, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I think he did a good job in this movie, you know, it, it, weird accents aside. So I looked him up to see, you know, if there was anything else that he did. And I wanted to see if, if he was on, like, any social media or anything, you know, just to see what he's up to nowadays. So I Googled Tom Matthews Twitter. The first result that I come up with is an account that has 30 followers. And you know what the most recent tweet that this Tom Matthews has tweeted out? Was he calling Jason a maggot head? Uh, well, actually, it says, and I quote, yeah, exclamation point, murdering cripples, exclamation point, <laughs> hashtag wild, wild west. So is that not the aforementioned Tom Matthews? You know, I have no idea. I mean, he could have just been watching part two, uh, and then he <laughs> he got really he got really excited at one of the particular death scenes. Wow, you're gonna make all the Friday the Thirteenth diehards die with that joke. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, the thing with this, the actor that plays Tommy, his name is Tom Matthews, but he spells it T H O M, which always drove me insane. It's like short for Thomas, but it's really Thom, not Tom. So I think maybe that's him trying to say his own name with the speech impediment that he has. It's like, Jason, you pussy. It's me, Thom. <laughs> Thommy, Thommy, Thommy Tarvis. <laughs> but it's, I just thought it was so weird the way he spells his name, because that's not historically how you spell Tom, because you put the H in there and it becomes weird. Well, you're talking about the history here. I think you might have to start up a, a, a Tom historians at this point. <laughs> yes. All right, so one of the most famous endings of a, J of a Friday the 13th movie, my personal favorite ending that Jason is being, he's up, so upset that, that Thom is out there calling him maggot head and pussy. Come on, you pussy! That he, Jason runs out into the lake and Tommy ties a big uh, chain around his neck with the biggest rock imaginable. I don't know how Tommy was able to carry that rock out to the boat, by the way. But Jason is, you know, he's tricked and he goes down to the bottom of the lake with this chain and the rock around his neck. And that is where he stays forever and eternity. Jason now at the bottom of the lake. And that's basically the end until Megan comes out there and saws his head off with a motor blade. Yeah, I think uh, this is probably my favorite of all the Jason death scenes because it just makes so much sense. Like you have the guy who is supposed to be dead at the bottom of the lake. And then how do you kill him? You throw him back to the bottom of the lake. Yeah. It, it, it makes perfect sense. And I know we make fun of Tommy saying, oh, you know, he has, he has to go back to the only place he knows or whatever. But I think it definitely does make sense within the entire context of the series that the, the place that Jason should permanently die is the place where everyone thought he was dead in the first place. I mean, in theory, this could have been the end of the series and it would have actually been a pretty solid series of movies. Yeah. Okay, he came back to life. We trapped him at the bottom of the lake. He's not going anywhere. And then, again, there's this gratuitous gore shot where, where Megan starts the motorboat and the blade basically cuts into his head and Jason dies. But, yeah, it's a, it's a very good ending. It's a very satisfying ending, and it always makes me wish they would have stopped the series here. You know, we say that he's, he's dead at the bottom of the lake, but, you know, as, as we know just from real life, the only way that you could be resurrected from the bottom of the lake is having a psychic girl just use her... <laughs> angry powers to just bring you back to life. Yeah, that's classic, classic mythology. 
Yeah, that's what that's what it says in the occult books. Yeah. Now, do you know the real life tie-in to this Jason being under the lake? Did you hear the story about the the guy in I think Minnesota who played a prank and made a Jason statue under a lake? No, I've never heard of it. I'm actually. so excited. This was in the news just recently, within the last year or two, that apparently there's this lake out in Minnesota or somewhere up there in the north where some guy decided he was going to play a prank on people that like to scuba dive in this place or go diving down there. That he actually created this Jason statue that looks exactly like dead Jason in the bottom of the lake. And he it's like a sculpture, and he somehow quietly brought it out to the bottom of this lake and put it down there. And it's like an exact replica of the movie. It looks like Jason with his eyes open, chained with the, neck, the rock around his neck, him looking up. Apparently this is like a very popular diving spot. People love to go deep sea diving there and scuba diving or whatever. And it like... He really only did it just to scare the crap out of people. Like, they would randomly stumble onto Jason down there and flip out. Well, now all the five-year-olds that are going to go scuba diving in that lake are going to be really excited when they see their idol, Jason Voorhees, <laughs> yeah. at the bottom of the lake. But yeah, do a, go do a YouTube search on it, that this, this Jason in the bottom of the lake. It's this hilarious video of people diving down there and taking pictures of it. You can see it. It's really funny. Yeah, that's really cool. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> And with that, the movie ends. Jason's been trapped down in the bottom of Crystal Lake where he came out, or from where he came. And uh, Tommy Jarvis has survived, and he saved the day, and he hooks up with Megan, the hot girl, and all the kids have survived. And here is the, here is the part of this movie, Brian, that will always be near and dear to my heart. The end credit theme song. Yeah, well, I think not only is the song that you're referring to the end credit theme song, but I counted two other times in this movie that this song played. Okay, for people who don't know, this is the only Friday the 13th movie that had its own theme song and its own music video. For some reason, they got Alice Cooper to sing a song called He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask. I will play it at the start of this podcast. It'll be the opening song. It's a fantastic song. I love it. it like Even just as a standalone song, it's pretty good. But yeah, the end. The movie ends, and we go right into this awesome Alice Cooper song. He's back, the man behind the mask, and he's after your soul. Like it's it's this awesome song. And at the time in the '80s, they had a music video for it and everything. It would play on MTV. So it's like this is like the pinnacle of how Friday the Thirteenth actually worked its way into pop culture. This was the highest moment they ever had, where they actually had a music video. Yeah, and I, I checked out the music video before we recorded this podcast, and. It, it just like this movie is very bizarre. Uh, like the, I guess the plot of the music video is that there's this son who wants to go on a date to the movies with this girl, mm -hmm. but his dad won't let him use the car. But then, so he has to walk to the movies and then they start watching Jason lives at the movie theater and Jason comes out of the movie screen with this really cheesy visual effect. And Alice Cooper's yelling at them the entire time. And then like they get kidnapped by Alice Cooper and, and, and pushed in a, in a cage and it plays all these clips from the movie but it plays like the most random clips possible like i think <laughs> deputy rick yeah there's, there's one point where it shows deputy rick crushing a bug <laughs> and then immediately after that it cuts to the great shot of megan falling out of her chair after the phone rings <laughs> this is in between all the jason clips so it's you know very bizarre choices made in this music video. Yeah, it's just a, a killer song, though. You would agree with me. You like the song, right? Oh, yeah. I remember the first time I, I watched this movie, I, I listened to that song, like, over and over. Because I'm like, this is actually just, like, a pretty good song. Like, even even without the, the whole tie-in. Mm -hmm. And it's got the whole, like, the... thing in it. So, you know, it's... it's You know, if, if you forget the fact that it's a part of this movie, it just 
sounds like a cool original song that has some vague Friday the 13th references in it. Yeah, and here's here's my argument. We're going to sum up here at the end why I think this is the best Friday the 13th movie. And again, it doesn't fit with the rest of the series. It's too goofy. It's self-referential. It's really Scream. It's really the first instance of, you know, horror movies have kind of got kind of silly. Let's make a commentary about them. So as a comedian at heart, I will always love that. And that's why this movie is my favorite. This and two are the two that I think are really pretty outstanding for Friday the 13th. But... This movie did not make a lot of money. Like you said earlier, Brian, it's one of the lower grossing Friday the 13th movies. But I would say a lot of that's just because people were pissed about five. I don't think it has anything to do with the quality of this one. But my argument is this was the highest that Friday the 13th ever got in pop culture as a crossover. Like one through four, they were big horror movies. But like I said, you weren't supposed to like them. Like you'd kind of be embarrassed if you watched them. And they were ones you'd sneak out to watch. You wouldn't tell your parents. Like it was almost embarrassing to say you watched a Friday the 13th movie. It was like the lowest common denominator of what cinema was. And then this one comes along and it kind of almost got fun and cool to watch Friday the 13th. And they had a music video and it's just kind of memorable and goofy and just it's it's there's appeal. This one this is the one movie I think that has a little appeal to non slasher movie fans because it's it's accessible to anybody. And so I'll always argue this is the one where they actually got the tone of Friday the 13th right, and they really kind of did something special where it would attract different types of viewers. And so that's why I'll always say I think this is the one good Friday the 13th movie, and I'm honored that this is the one we decided to do on Staff Picks. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that you just said. And I guess one thing that I noticed when rewatching this movie that I think is another thing that just makes it so much better than every other movie is the fact that. Our main character, our protagonist, Tommy Jarvis, encounters Jason in the very first few minutes of this movie. Mm. So he spends the rest of the movie paranoid about Jason, whereas in like every other Friday the 13th movie, the main character doesn't encounter Jason until like the last 20 minutes. So basically what we're watching is a bunch of unrelated stories of Jason killing people. And then, you know, it just ends with the main character just happens to be the one that survives. But in this one, it's it's an actual story from a beginning to an end where this character has actual connections to the villain. And I, and I think on top of all the humor and on top of all the meta jokes, you know, I, I think there are some story elements to it that are a little bit different from the other Friday movies that I think makes it uh, significantly better than than most of them. That's a really good point, and I hadn't thought of it that way, that the arc actually is different than every other Friday movie. But I do have to point out the elephant in the room here, that the only reason the protagonist meets Jason at the start is because he accidentally brings him back to life and starts the whole movie up. So is Tommy really the protagonist? That's what I'm going to point out. Or maybe he's the antagonist because he's the idiot that brought Jason back to life. Oh, yeah. If, if we want to talk about... Uh... All of the, the the people that got killed in this movie and in the next movie and on a cruise ship and also a couple in Manhattan and all the ones in space, you could blame that all on Tommy Jarvis. Yeah, Tommy Jarvis has the second highest body count of anybody in the series. It, it's close between him and Roy Burns. <laughs> and with the chocolate bar. The chocolate bar led to two deaths, yeah, so that's four. Yeah. So yeah, so I don't want to overstate this movie to people. I'm not telling you this is an amazing movie that everyone should rush out and you'll be blown away by how good it is. I'm just saying, if you watch all the Friday the 13th movies, this one stands out and it's so special because 
the other ones are just basically crap. I hate to say that. I mean, they're fun for what they are, but there's nothing really special or interesting about them. This one is a little special. And like I said, this one was about eight years ahead of its time. This begat Scream. Scream begat every horror movie for the next 10 years after that, where everything had to be ironic and self-referential. And, you know, like, we're too cool for this movie. We're going to mock it. But always let it be known, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, was the the Jackie Robinson of that whole genre. It started it. It never got the credit for it. And I'm really glad we got to talk about it because it's really unique for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't really speak to the history because I, you know, I really don't have a place to, to be talking about the history of this movie. But, you know, I just as someone coming at it from from my perspective, you know, it's hard to get more enjoyable than watching this movie. If you want to be scared, yeah, you're not really going to be scared. But then if you want to be scared, don't watch a Friday the 13th movie. <laughs> you know, if you want some laughs, definitely watch this movie. If you want a unique experience from beginning to end, watch this movie. You know, I think this is a movie that you could recommend to just about anyone, including 15-year-old me, because of the lack of nudity in it. That's good, because that's the important part. You want to make sure that it's inclusive for everybody. So the take away the, the gratuitous breasts and boobs and, and you're fine. And add more biblical references. Yeah, and, and way more Deputy Rick on the commentary. Yeah. <laughs> All right, do you have anything else to add about uh, Friday the 13th, the series, the franchise, anything else before we sign off here? Uh, I know we didn't really go into the uh, the planned original ending for this, but I'll just sum up really quick uh, the whole thing with the caretaker. But um, this was revealed on, on the, the DVD extras. But basically the original plan for the ending was that the the caretaker, Martin, was going to survive. He wasn't going to get killed by Jason. And at the end, he would be in the graveyard, and we would be introduced to Jason Voorhees' father, who is a previously unseen character in this series. Jason's father would pay Martin as sort of uh, thanks for taking care of his wife's and his son's grave. And then he would look into the camera all menacingly and then we would see Jason's body to kind of like set up the fact that Jason's father was going to become an instrumental part of the Friday the 13th series moving forward. The studio cut that. They're like, no, we're not going to bring in the father. You're not going to do that. And the director was kind of annoyed, but yeah, it's, that would have been an interesting ending. Although it does raise one question. What's that? How good a father could Mr. Voorhees have been if he never even taught his kid to swim? <laughs> I mean, that's really on him. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we can talk about a lot of questionable parents in this movie, like everyone that sent their, their kids to Camp Forest Green. <laughs> I mean, it was discounted, okay? It was discounted. It's cheap. I also want to point out that in that in that DVD extra about Mr. Voorhees, they get the uh, actor that played Martin to, to like do like a, a short line reading, and in that he does say the word farthead again. <laughs> well, you got to go back to the well when you have a line that good. Well, it makes me wonder, if... if were they going to save the fart head joke for the menacing ending, or were they just going to use the fart head joke twice in the movie? <laughs> Why don't you use the Nathan for you line three times in this podcast, so who are you to talk? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny if it comes in threes. All right, well, it was fun talking to you about Friday the 13th again. This is not a movie I really expected I'd do on Staff Picks, and then eventually people talked me into it. And now that we've done this one, I'm kind of tempted to maybe do part two, which is the other one that I think is a little underrated. So I'll think about it, but... I'm glad we finally did six, and you were a you were a fun guest. It was a Brian and I had been talking about doing this podcast for like almost a year now, and we just finally got around to it. So thank you for coming on and having so much energy and bringing some of the younger five year old references to my audience that we wouldn't have otherwise. 
Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. And I guess if there's one more thing I could say, it's for everyone that's a horror fan out there, including you, Mario. Uh, I would recommend a YouTube channel called Dead Meat. It's basically this guy who just does kill counts of all of your favorite horror movies, including some that you've never even heard of. Like, even the most obscure ones, like a movie called New Year's Evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's covered movies like that. So if, if you want to... Uh, in- Increase your horror movie fandom. I would recommend that channel. And it covers all my favorite horror movies and also Scream. Yes. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I know maybe Friday the 13th isn't your thing, but hopefully we got you to maybe be a little curious about it. Maybe you should check out this part six because it is a little goofy. And, uh, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that need a little more love, and I'll find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later, you fartheads. Yeah, that really scared the shit out of me.